So it's my privilege to introduce to you today our guest uh, preacher, uh, the Reverend Peter Lyon. Uh, Peter is a campus minister with RUF, which I know many, if not most of you, are familiar with Reform University Fellowship. So it makes him a colleague with uh, Ben and Chelsea. Uh, Peter uh, serves with RUF at CNU and prior to that uh, worked with RUF at VCU. Uh, he is married to Sarah. They have two young children. He also hails from the same hometown as my all-time hero, Rocky Balboa. So, the city of brotherly love, uh, he is from Philadelphia. So we're glad to have you here with us today. Thank you so much. It is a pleasure to be with you this cheerful morning when we're all so bright-eyed. I don't know about you. I have, I have a five and a seven-year-old, and my seven-year-old son got a fever last night, and I'm sitting there holding him, like, looking at the clock as he's like not able to go to sleep, like, oh, I'm losing time, I'm losing time. But we are here this morning, and it is good to be fellowshipping with you. Uh, it is my joy uh, to get to bring the privilege to bring the Word of God to you today. Uh, I'll be reading from the Psalms. I love preaching from the Psalms when I come and visit. Uh, they're such an encouragement uh, there's such joy, uh, you know, it, it, it's nice. We can, we can kind of sing this together, you know, without much context and, and really get into it, and it's really good. Uh, I have to admit to you, though, uh, growing up, I was not a, a Psalms guy. You know, you know, if you grow up in the church, there's, there's very much a, kind of an archetype within the church, the, the very sensitive Psalms guy. He knows and memorizes them. He's the, the poetic heart of the church world. Um, I, I always wanted to be that guy. Uh, thought that guy seemed really cool. Uh, I remember when I was at Penn State and I was studying uh, history and literature, I took a bunch of poetry classes. And during the poetry classes, I really loved the poetry, right? Like I loved talking about it and going through it. And then I'd bring my books of John Donne and things like that home and I'd read them. And I'm like, I'm getting nothing from this. It broke my heart. You know, wanted to be that guy. I was much more of a first and second Kings guy, maybe a minor prophets guy. They're less cool guys. Um, but it was interesting. A few years back, when I, when I first uh, moved down to Virginia, when I was in Richmond, uh, was having, you know, one of those series of weeks, uh, you know, that at the time feels just disastrous, uh, you know, item upon item just kind of coming down. And in hindsight, it's like, what was happening again? Uh, but at the time, it felt also immediate and present and, and overwhelming. And a, and a friend of mine just sent me something and said, hey, I'm praying for you. I'm praying through Psalm 46 uh, for you. You should take a look at it. And I was like, that's very sweet. That's very kind. And I took a look at Psalm 46. I was like, oh, be still and know that I am God. That's good. That's good. And I was going to be done with it, but I was actually going up for my ordination exams to become uh, not just Peter Lyon, but the Reverend uh, Peter Lyon. And uh, I had seen in one of the examinations that they had asked if somebody had any psalms memorized, and the guy hadn't, and it was very embarrassing. Um, and so I was like, well, I got this one on my mind. I should do this because it, it, it's happening soon. So I start uh, ruminating very cynically, very cynically start kind of ruminating over this. Uh, but it's amazing, despite my cynical bad intentions, going over the process of learning and repeating and memorizing uh, really worked this psalm on my heart. It made this psalm become very special to me. Uh, I had not done much memorizing. I had used to do theater and, and improv back in the day, and I, I had kind of given up my memorizing day. I was always more of a Bible paraphraser uh, than direct quotation. Uh, but, but going through this, the process of repeating it, 
and digging into it really awakened in me uh, a great joy in it. And it awakened work that the psalm did in my heart. And so hopefully today, as we read through this and repeat the lines again and again, we'll get a, a taste of that and a joy of that. So read with me, if you will, from Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Heavenly Father, as we... Oh, as we sing this psalm in our hearts, as we repeat it, Lord, I pray that you would give us an openness, a willingness to receive and hear what you are trying to teach us, a humility uh, to come to you as our refuge and our fortress. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On first reading, uh, you know, I, I emphasized it as I read through it, but on first reading, what really pops out is that, that line, be still and know that I am God. Or maybe the repetition we see in verses 1, 7, and 11, this continual confession that God is our, our refuge, our fortress, our strong place, that he is ours, that he is with us. Yes, good, comfort there. As we roll over this psalm again and again, though, I think it's really good, a good place to start, a good place to begin to unpack this and what this means for us and what this has for us is with the imagery. So let's start with this idea, this idea of the fortress, this idea of the refuge. It's an important idea. Um, You know, this idea that God is our present help. He is at hand for us. Uh, we don't really live in, a, in an era of, of fortresses and refuges right now. Um, we might metaphorically, you know, some of you probably have some experience with that, you know, during the Cold War, you know, the, the fallout shelter, that, that place that's accessible that you can get to for safety, you know. But keep in mind how much of human history is dominated by this idea of like, where is the safe place that in, in a moment's notice we can run to for safety, a castle or a fortress that is far away is no good to you, you know? What is the spot that you can get to that will keep you safe? And so it's important that we see that God is not just a fortress, not just a refuge, but he is a very present help. He is there. He is available. He is accessible. And what is he available in the midst of? What is he a refuge from? Well, we move into this language. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar in foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. We have kind of two 
important pieces of this image, the sea and the mountains. Let's start with the sea. Uh, I don't know how many of you like to, are like, you know, I know there's kind of a separation of like mountain, lake, and beach people. I'm a beach person. I love to sit on the beach and like look out under the vastness of the ocean. Uh, the ocean is sort of overwhelming. You know, the sea is sort of this thing that's like, Wow. If you've ever gone out in a storm, I, I, my brother and I, one time when we were down in Outer Banks as, as like teenagers, there was a hurricane rolling in. And before the, the beach got closed, we went to try and like body surf some of the big waves. And there's an immense feeling of powerlessness in a stormy sea. And you realize there is nothing I can do against this. I am a good, strong swimmer, but if I get caught in something, I'm done. You know, this is written by a people who, you know, by, you know, Israel's right on the, on the banks of the Mediterranean, which is a stormy sea. It is a dangerous sea. Storms come up quickly, destroy ships. The sea is chaotic and fearful place. Contrast that with mountains. You know, the sea is ever-changing, hard to predict, terrifying in a sense. Uh, mountains are, are hard to, to pass, but they're, they're solid. They've been there since before you were there. There's little you can do to impact them. You know, you go up to a mountain, take whatever hand tool you want, take a whole day, and try and make an impact on that mountain. No one will notice it the next day. A solid rain will undo all your work. Like, you can't impact a mountain. There is a, a solidness. There is a, you know, we blow them up with dynamite now, but you really think about for how long mountains were this absolute boundary, this thing that outlasted nations and empires. There is a solidity there. What is this imagery that we have in the psalm? That thing that appears solid and immovable, thrown into the, into the sea, the source of chaos and danger. The seas rising and foaming and working and that strong created thing, the mountain, trembles. But in the midst of that, we have a, we have this, I would say, aspirational line. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. The things that terrify us, the psalmist is telling us, have no power over us in the refuge of God. Uh, it's, it's good for me to, I'm, I'm a bit of an anxious person, if I'm, if I'm honest, if I'm leading with confession. Already told you I'm not a psalms guy, I'm also an anxious guy. Uh, you know, prone to, the, prone to moments of anxiety. And uh, you know, there's certain things, it's like, you know, not... You know, I think oftentimes we'll make things like, oh, I'm afraid of spiders or that. But really, it's the little fears that, that really get us or the really little anxieties that get us. Like, I hate being in crowded, chaotic rooms, you know, with a lot of people I don't know. I discovered, like, acting and later preaching. It's like, well, if I'm the loudest and most chaotic person in the front of it, then that's fine. But if I'm just amidst it, it's like, well, that's really overwhelming. <laughs> don't, do not like, do not recommend. But you work through these things. Now, it's interesting as, as a parent of children, you, know, you always imagine the good traits or the good things that you want to pass on to your kids. You don't think about the things where it's like, oh, they're just like me. My son hates loud, chaotic rooms. He has a speech delay, so he couldn't express it. 
And so he started to really be scared at places like church with loud music and things like that. And then there was a global pandemic and he sat in his own house for six months and now he's back and he's terrified. Fear is, it's not a rational thing a lot of times. You know, it's not this thing that we like have carefully thought out. And it's funny to see it in someone you love, someone small like my child, like, I want my son to just just go to church. It's not that scary. It's just people. You know most of these people. It's okay. I want this for you. But he's afraid. You can tell him he's safe. It's fine. But it's too much. And we could just accommodate him. We could just like not go into the service. We could not go there, but... At a certain point, that's not really conquering your fears, right? If I spent my whole life avoiding crowded, chaotic spaces, I I haven't conquered my fear. My fear has conquered me. And it's not so easy. You know, you might realize this, grasp this, and it's not so easy to just, okay, well, I'll just stop then. No, no. I think a lot of this process of going that I went through with my son at first, it's like, okay, well, let's put on some headphones, some noise-canceling headphones and give you something that distracts you and, and we can work down to the point where we're not wearing headphones, but you're still like, you know, you got this. And now we're, you know, a couple years later, we're sitting in church and we're responding. We're in a good place. We're still in the back of the service. You know, it, it's this process. Learning the mechanisms by which we cope with these things, by which we do them, is a process. But the alternative is that my fear is in charge. The psalm, the psalm has a lot to do with fear. The mountains are afraid. But we're not in the refuge of God. And so, in repeating this, it... it it should cause us to think about what are we afraid of? Maybe the easier way to trace that back, maybe we're not able to bring those things consciously to mind. Maybe we're not able to admit those things. Maybe we should say, what are we making accommodations for? What are the things we avoid or run or let rule us? Because we're afraid. The psalm continues though. It continues. It's not just simply a declaration that we will not be afraid. It continues, and it gives us this comparison. It offers us an almost a little bit of a jarring transition. We just jump to a city, to a river. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. On one side, we have the rage and the faltering of the kingdoms of the world. God's voice melting away them away. And on the other side, we have this beautiful city, watered by a river. That, that language might be strange, Why the focus on the river. It has a, it's a callback to Genesis 2, to the river that waters Eden. It's what we were made for, to live in the presence and the security 
of God. To be his people, to be in the midst of our Creator. It's peaceful, it's hopeful. It stirs something in our heart of what we were made for. And on the other end of it, we see the things that produce anxiety and fear in us. The, the raging of kingdoms. The, the falling of nations. And amidst this, this line, God utters his voice and the earth melts. That's a weird line, right? The voice, the same voice that called creation into being. Remember, if we read the story of creation, if you're not familiar with it, God brings creation into being by the power of his word. That same voice is powerful, substantial. It, it, we see similar language in uh, Micah chapter 1. I warned you I was a minor prophets guy. Uh, this is Micah, cha- Micah chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 where God is offering judgment on his people Israel for their unjust behavior. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, the wa- like waters poured down a steep place. That imagery, how that's such a for me, that's such a visceral image. You can see this idea of melting like wax or or the voice speaking and the earth just melting. It's this it's terrifying imagery. It's supposed to be worrying. But it's also an interesting I think we need to see the contrast in how we often perceive things. Often our faith Our image of God, our image of the spiritual realm is often very immaterial. It can be very theoretical. And when pressed with the concerns, the frustrations, the worries, and the anxieties that are on us this moment, that email that you really feel like you need to respond to, that sickness that the doctors just can't quite figure out, These things that just feel like immediate, present concerns pushing on us. Our sense of what is substantial and what is insubstantial can get flip-flopped. Scripture is telling us, do you really know what's substantial? When the creator interacts with his creation, one is way more substantial than the other. God's very voice can melt away. Something we can't even... See, I remember I was very moved uh, at a younger age. I think I was in college when I read C.S. Lewis's book. It's very short called The Great Divorce. It's sort of a theoretical, uh, you know, it's sort of very much in the kind of medieval style of like, oh, I'm going like a journey down to hell and a journey up to heaven. And he presents us a very, very different view of heaven and hell than we often imagine. 
His hell is not full of very visceral fires and, and, and tortures, but instead is a very immaterial place. You can imagine and create anything you want. People just make a house out of nothing, but the house doesn't keep the rain out. Hell is this insubstantial, kind of transparent place. And he takes a, bu- he takes a bus, it's very British, takes a bus up to heaven And once he gets to heaven, they get off the bus and they realize their feet are aching from walking on grass because the grass is so substantial, so real, and they are almost see-through in this place compared to the substance and the materiality of heaven. They are, they are weak, insubstantial things. And I think we need to be reminded of this. We need this language that's sometimes terrifying to us to remind us what is really, truly real. What has substance? This matters as we think about our worries about our fears, about those little things that start, to, that start to control us, that start to guide us, that start to do that because they feel so present. They feel so just, you can almost like physically feel them. You carry the tension of it. It's right now, it's happening here. If I don't get this in, if I don't finish this, oh my goodness. The urgency of it lends it a materiality and God is saying that thing is not as powerful as you think it is. That thing you fear melts in the presence of the most high God. That thing that terrifies you and keeps you up at night is subject to its creator. And that forces us or maybe asks us into this next section of beholding. We are called to come behold the works of the Lord. Like, good, good. How he has brought desolations on the earth. Okay, uh, that's not where I thought we were going with this. I think this, is, this, this sounds really out of place to us. This, this desolation, this destructions, your Bible might translate it. Um, I think uh, you'll see this word used in other places in scripture to mean like, you know, God threatens Israel with this as like, I will make you a desolation and eventually does like once again, this is something, and this is probably more living in America. We don't live in the presence of these like ancient monuments all the time. Uh, Throughout ancient history, you're like, you might stumble upon a city. There's this great, um, in, in ancient history, this is, pre, you know, this is in the BCs, these Greek mercenaries are wandering through Mesopotamia and they stumble upon a city that hasn't been lived in for a thousand years and it's bigger than any city in Greece. (laughs) They stumbled upon one of the ancient Sumerian cities which had been uninhabited since 2000 BC. You can just stumble upon these places where you're like, who lived here? Who knows? I remember one time in France, just being in the city and just this one field was full of stones about six feet high. Nobody knows what they were doing there. All just in rows, lined up. 
what we need to see here is God outlasts the things that we see so present in our age, the things that are pushing on us. Not only does he outlast them, he controls the rising and the falling of empires, of nations, of cities. He has made cities great. He has raised them low. We stare at these things. We feel powerless, but God does not. Come behold the works of the Lord. He has been active and working through history, through time, and in times that we don't even have recorded, that we will never know about, that are forgotten. Look at the language of this. He makes wars to cease at the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. There's this future looking version of that. Like, oh, God makes active peace. But there's also an active portion of this. He is doing it. God is at work in this world. He is powerful in this world. He is powerful over things that seem so far above us and beyond us. He is present and he is powerful. And so when he commands us to be still and know that he is God, he's not asking us to delve into the theoreticals of what God has done. He's not saying like, hey, you know, think about what I might do in the future. He's encouraging us to be still and know who I am. Look at what I've done. So if you're in ancient Israel and the psalm is written, you might say, ah, I'll look to the Exodus and remember how God brought our people, a low people, out of Egypt, the most powerful kingdom in the world, how he laid them low, how he made a desolation of that army, that we were powerless. You might say, oh, remember how he moved powerfully through the prophets. But think about what we, who have even more than Israel can say, be still and know that I am God. Remember that I sent my only son, Jesus, to live and to die for you. that you are not left wondering how you will be made right with God, how there possibly can be justice, how there possibly can be peace. You know this. You have the testimony of the saints. You can read about the person of Jesus, truly God and truly man. You know this. You know that your hope And life and death rests not in yourself, but 100% fully in the work of God. You have been adopted as a son or daughter, the Most High King, not by your own striving, but by the work of Jesus. Be still and know that I am God.
There's a lot of language of familiarity in this psalm. Look at all the different names that are used for God. We say God, we say God of Jacob, the Lord of hosts. In that word, the Lord of hosts, you'll see it capitalized in your Bible. That's because it's the name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah, if you like anglicized things. We actually have the name, like you have familiarity with God. He is not distant. He is present. You know who he is. Think of the people, think of the people in your life you have lots of names for. Nicknames, pet names, names of affection. Think about the trust that goes with that familiarity. I think the easy one for me, you know, I, 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 I'm, I am blessed to have a lot of people that I, that, I, that I call by many names. But obviously my wife is the, the closest of those. There's a trust that is born out of that familiarity, out of being known, right? And I would hope that my wife knows me well. I would hope that if we were having people, new people over for dinner or friends of hers that I didn't know over for dinner, increasingly rare as we get to year 15 of marriage, but that happens. Like people are coming over. I would expect, if she were to say, Pete, I'm worried that you're going to be quiet and shy. I would say, that's an absurd thing to worry about. Do you even know me? It's, the thing you should be worried about is whether I'll put my foot in my mouth. Uh, I've worked with my wife a lot. She's on staff with me at uh, RUF at Christopher Newport. Uh, we've also worked in staff uh, together in uh, high school ministry and just in general, we've waited tables together. We've done a lot of things together. Um, my wife is the sort of person who gets things done. If you talk, like in a, if you're in a meeting, you're like, well, we should really send an email out. She is starting to type that email in the meeting. Like she, is, she's, she gets things done. If I, as her supervisor, were to check in on her like every day on like, hey, that thing I told you about, are you working on this? That would be a violation of the trust that has built up by familiar. Of course she's doing it. She's Sarah Lyon. She did it way before I thought she would. I'm still thinking about that one phone call I've got to do. She's made six. Do we know God? Do we know the things he has done? Do we bear witness to them and praise him for them? I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Do we recognize the good things he has done? Are we confident enough in the works of our Lord to rest from our anxiety and worrying? To be still. To be at peace. To hear this psalm and believe it. You want the easiest application out of this? Go read a gospel this week. Know Jesus. Spend time with him. Be still and know him and know that he is God. Recognize his voice. And I say that because I want to reiterate, if if Israel had reason, an excellent reason based on their history, based on just the visual, visible, wonderful works of God throughout, uh, throughout their history. They had reason to know God, to trust him, to rest in his faithfulness and power as this psalm instructs, as this psalm sings. How much more reason do we have to trust in him? We who have Jesus. 
who know the testimony of his life, his death, and his resurrection. Who have seen the greatest example of God's faithfulness. That the faithlessness, our faithlessness, the faithlessness of his people has been paid for. In blood. That Christ would willingly die so that we could live. Having seen that, having recognized that it wasn't by our own strength, but by the, by the work of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, how much less should we trust in our own strength? Should we trust in our own busyness, our own kind of anxious maneuvering? How much less should we trust ourselves to be strong when we have seen God conquer through weakness and upend this world's vision of strength. It was our sin, our offense, our evil that collectively broke this world and necessitated that Jesus die. The best of our actions is tainted by sin. We cannot be our own refuge. How much more reason do we have to be still and take refuge in our God? through the resurrection of Jesus Christ has proven that he will be exalted. He's conquered death itself. So what is this psalm doing for us? Is this psalm condemning us? Is this psalm saying, is this psalm grabbing you in at, at 1 a.m. when you're still awake in your anxious fear and saying, see, you're doing it wrong. Is this psalm a condemnation for us or is it a work in us? Remember what psalms are. They are songs to be sung. They are poems to be repeated. They are meditations to work through. This psalm can work on us. The practice of saying these things is powerful practice. I would encourage you to see in anxious worry, in giving into our fears, that is not a passive action. That's a meditation. That's a habit. That's a discipline. And in this psalm, we see a counter-discipline. Uh, you might think of it as a, a sort of a repentant discipline. Think about the, the, the meaning of repentance. The, really, the, really, the Hebrew of it is to turn back, to turn around, to go back. This psalm is a method for us, a tool, a, a, a useful a useful habit-building thing to remind us where our refuge is. A counter-habit to our anxiety. A practiced repentance for our worry. That when, when our heart says, I don't trust that I'm secure. I do not trust that being you, one of God's people is enough. I, I, these things are pressing on. They feel real and God, it does not feel real. We read this psalm and it is practiced repentance, practiced meditation on what is true, practiced meditation on the word of God. That instead of saying, I fear, I fear this thing has power over me, we instead, through the power of the Holy Spirit, which gives us freedom to choose what is good, we say instead, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob, is our fortress. I will be still and know that you are God and that I am yours. And that is enough.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that our hearts would find their peace and security in you. That in our moments of worry, that in our moments of fear, we would not feel condemnation or dread. When we feel so far, when your power feels immaterial, that in that moment, we can repeat the words of the psalm. We can rejoice in your presence. We can be reminded of your power and your substance, your presence. Lord, give us joy in our hearts to know that you are our refuge, our very present help in times of trouble. We pray this in Jesus' name.